Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and if you've been following developments over the last 7 to 10 days, it's been quite a few crazy days um, in the broader South Asian region, in particular in Afghanistan, where Taliban have taken over control of the majority of the country. Um, a few places here and there, like the Panjshir Valley, is still not fully under their control, but Kabul is, and so they are moving towards creating and forming their own government, have em- embarked on a PR sort of mission to tell the world that this is Taliban 2.0. But at the same time, as all of this is happening, we're seeing tragic scenes out of Kabul airport, um, refugees flocking the Pakistan border, and a lot of concern uh, within Pakistan about what all of this means for the country. Um, And I'll say up top that many of us, including myself, have had to eat dirt in the last seven to 10 days because we all thought that the Afghan defense forces uh, will stand and fight and this won't be as quick of a route as it ended up being. Um, and it's important to acknowledge things when you get them wrong. But to talk about what's going on and what all of this means for Pakistan, I'm joined here by Fahad, with Fahad Humayu. Uh, he's a PhD candidate at Yale University, frequently writes on foreign policy, South Asia and issues in Pakistan for the news. And he recently wrote a very insight, insightful piece uh, for the Monkey Cage blog on the Washington Post about what the situation in Afghanistan means uh, for Pakistan and what the potential fallout of that might be. So I figured that I would invite him and talk to him about everything that's going on in the region and how he sees development. So Fahad, thank you for joining us and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with your thoughts overall at a macro level in terms of what's happened in Afghanistan. Of course, Uh, You know, we had the famous, I think it was a month or so ago, uh, press conference by President Joe Biden here in Washington. um, And he was asked about, is the Taliban takeover imminent? And he very forcefully said that, no, it's not. Since then, obviously, he's had to uh, sort of walk back those comments. There's been some articles in the media about uh, assessments and intelligence assessments that were made, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see everything that has happened in the last seven to 10 days? I think I think um, <clears throat> yeah I think the Americans got it spectacularly spectacularly wrong, and uh, that's in some ways it's 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 very tragic because I think what we learned in hindsight is that uh, uh, U.S. intelligence reports actually told the executive in Washington that national. Uh, as it was called then, uh, it collapsed that the ASF probably wouldn't be able to withstand the Taliban onslaught. And yet, there was this, uh, there was a lot of confidence in in, uh, statements that we saw out of Joe Biden and others, uh, just saying that the Afghan government has the capacity A strong fight against the Taliban. I think. I think one thing that stood out to me from from uh, that press conference that Joe Biden did uh, a couple of weeks ago was. I think it also. Uh, <clears throat> I think it also uh, revealed some some of the frustration that the U.S. had. Um, these are the Ashraf Ghani uh, 
and its inability to sort of get its act together and counter counter the Taliban. There was this sense, I think, in Washington that look, you know, we've done as much as we could. Now it's for you guys to like take care of this. But I think some of that also had its roots in the February 2020 uh, peace deal that the US and the Taliban signed, which for all practical purposes was this this um, exit agreement between uh, you know, a superpower on the one hand and this ragtag militia on the other, uh, which the US, I think. Uh, America's intention to wash its hands of Afghanistan was perhaps more or less uh, clearly signaled in, in the signing of, of that, that agreement. So everything that we've seen since, uh, more or less, I think, I think we could have predicted this given that the U.S. made its intentions very clear back then. I also think that the U.S. <coughs> um, there's this, uh, some of the blame about the speed with which Ashraf Ghani's government sort of buckled under its own weight uh, lies at America's doorstep because in, in the February 2020 agreement, the US, for all practical purposes, cut out Kabul completely. It was, it was a sort of a completely bilateral negotiation. Taliban and, and the United States. So the delegitimization of, of, of Kabul uh, and uh, former President Ashraf uh, again can be traced back to events that go back several years. And so we, we saw, um, you know, I, I agree with you that cutting the Kabul government out of those early negotiations was basically um, you know, the you're cutting the regime off on its knees and basically signaling to the Taliban that they were essentially the only uh, game in town, essentially, because they were part of the deal. And then they the only thing that they honored out of that agreement was that they would not attack U.S. troops. We've seen that them honor that deal even through the Kabul airport evacuation. Um, but everything else was fair play. Um, and, I, and I also agree that I think the spectacular blunder of not even having evacuation plans or evacuating people ahead of time as the withdrawal was occurring was just insane, um, primarily because in, in many ways you actually do look at contingency planning and say, well, here's the worst case scenario and you plan and execute for the worst case scenario, hoping for the best, not just hoping for the best and saying, well, if the worst case scenario pans out, then we will evacuate everyone that we need to. And I think it's just tragic to see and hear um, reports of people who are stuck on the ground in Kabul trying to get out, um, fearing for their lives. And it really is, um, you know, a, a tragedy that is unfolding um, in so many ways. And I think the whole idea of like having this political moment that the troops would be back before September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and that political photo op, so to speak, not a photo op, but a political sort of rhetoric narrative opportunity that was there is gone, right? It's been replaced by the new Saigon type images that have come out of, of, of Kabul in particular. I want to switch to then the impact on Pakistan, right? And before sort of we go into like domestic impact, I want to get your thoughts on the impact on Pakistan in the broader international community, in particular, um, what you see the impact of everything that has happened over the last 10 days on the US-Pakistan relationship. Because of course, there is 
already a number of articles coming out and views being you know put out there that Pakistan is to blame for this 20-year fiasco. Um, much of that analysis is I fully I think that is way off the mark in terms of you know blaming a country that continues to go to the IMF for the failure of a trillion plus dollar war. How do you see the impact moving forward on US-Pakistan relations given um, everything that has happened? I think it's going to be, uh, things are going to be difficult. Um, that's not really a surprise because the Pakistan-US uh, relationship on any good day is, is a difficult relationship. Um, I think we've moved um, a long way away from you know, the heyday of this relationship when Pakistan was sort of officially recognized as a major uh, non-NATO ally and a frontline state in the war on terror. Um, and since then, I think the relationship has deteriorated. Um, for the most part, it's been on life support uh, over the course of the past two U.S. administrations, um, as you you know very well, uh, since since President uh, Biden came into power, um, <clears throat> there was I think this uh, anticipation and this uh, hope in Pakistan that there would be a reset in relations, um, and that with the U.S. finally leaving Afghanistan or having a Signal its intention to do so. America might be able to shift the, the sort of the prism with which it looks at the region and, and update its relationship with Pakistan accordingly. Pakistan's frustration throughout this period has been that um, don't hyphenate us to what's happening next door. Uh, I think Pakistani officials and very Khan's government have, have gone a step further and very sort of clearly articulated their desire for uh, a purely bilateral relationship that goes beyond just the sort of security day to day um, that it has come to be known for. Um, and Pakistan has, for the most part, been disappointed because President Biden still hasn't worked. Um, there's been very little sort of high level um, direct contact. Sides, um, the sort of behind the scenes cooperation in terms of trying to expedite the drop on or notwithstanding. Um, and so the, the NSAs of the two sides have had a couple of conversations. Um, there have been these sort of quieter attempts uh, away from um, the limelight of the media limelight to try and I think. Place the relationship on a more even footing, um, but what's been become what's become becoming increasingly evident is that there's very little desire and appetite in Washington right for um, investing in a the sort of the health and the equity of America's relationship with Islam. Um, that's that's going to be very disappointing to folks in in Pakistan. My own, my own assessment is that um, if the U.S. The, so if, if the U.S. sort of turns its back on Afghanistan, which I think is what we're seeing happening uh, in the process, it will do the same to Pakistan and the region. Uh, 
that's not going to work well for regional stabilization. I think, um, you know, I think I see a number of possible pathways towards regional stabilization. One is like following through on um, orderly, inclusive, an orderly transition to an inclusive intra-urban kind of political dispensation that has, um, um, that's able to solicit a degree of international legitimacy. I think uh, continuing arduous cooperation is very important to get to that point, for instance. Uh, I think the issue of refugees is going to be huge in the region, not just for Pakistan, but for Iran, to a lesser extent for Turkey. I think uh, American assistance is going to be extremely important in making sure that those refugees are, aren't being turned away from this country's borders. That um, also there's a long-term plan put in place for uh, how these refugees are able to sort of like house and shelter not to mention that all of this is taking place in the middle of the middle of the pandemic. So I think the imperatives for uh, Pakistan and the United States to keep the, the sort of uh, communication channels open is very much there. Um, but I don't think America is really looking at it that way. And in fact, um, you mentioned that there have been a couple of cases um, sort of like casting around for uh, scapegoat looking to blame. Um, I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg there. Um, because in the coming months, in the coming weeks, as uh, I think as the realization of what has happened settles in in Washington. So right now, I think a lot of people are just in shock uh, from the sights and images of what's happening at Kabul Airport, the speed with which the American flag was lowered at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul and folded up and put on a plane. Uh, I think uh, as as this realization sort of sinks in, um, and we see more analysis in the coming weeks, um, undoubtedly uh, frustration is going to be directed at Pakistan. The U.S. does see as to uh, blame for its failures in Afghanistan. What do you think that means, though, like if frustration is directed and like that's something I've been thinking about over the last couple of days is, you know, you rewind to the end of the Afghan Soviet conflict and then the Soviets pack up and leave um, the Pakistan and the United States had a really good set of relationships at that point in time to sort of force the Soviets into defeat. Um, and it was, you know, much better in shape as a relationship than it is today. But that then was quickly followed by sanctions on Pakistan, right, related to the nuclear program. But still, the relationship took a very quick turn that sort of, you know, Pakistanis uh, still talk about and, and talk about how the United States abandoned Pakistan when the, you know, the Mujahideen won in, in against the Soviets. Um, now it's even... It's not even that kind of a relationship, right? It's clearly been uh, on a rocky path for a long period of time. So help help us war game this out. Like, what is it that happens? Is it that the IMF all of a sudden begins to take a much tougher stance because it's not going to, uh, because the United States is going to use that as leverage um, to again, quote unquote, pay back um, Pakistan? Is it related to FATF? Is it even related to or going down the path of sanctions? Because, hey, if sanctions could have happened 
um, following the Soviet withdrawal in Afghanistan, uh, when there was still uh, this, you know, sort of celebration, jubilant mode in Washington, D.C. about ending the Cold War soon after, um, what's stopping all of this from happening this time around when clearly there's a lot of anger and frustration that will be directed towards Pakistan? Like, what do you think, uh, uh, what do you think can happen in the next few months? So I, I think sanctions might be a bit unrealistic. Um, I think the U.S. has also learned that uh, you know, uh, what kind of coercive policy instruments are effective, what are cost prohibitive. Um, my sense is that this frustration is just going to translate into indifference. Um, and I don't think that's good for either side. Um, because we've been living with American indifference for many years. Um, and that is, I think, for many Pakistani officials, punishment in, in itself. Um, because ultimately for Pakistan, a lot of America, uh, how America treats Pakistan is always sort of uh, weighed against how America treats the other big sort of protagonist, antagonist in the region. Um, and with America directing its, its attentions to uh, in the Pacific, which I also think is uh, was one of the reasons and the justifications for the speed with which it wanted to get out of Afghanistan, which is that it realized that China is up and coming and it wants to sort of you know, reorient its, its uh, muscle and its, its sort of strategic focus to counter that threat. Um, I think the, the sort of the tone of, of America's relationship with Pakistan. Um, will uh, probably stay neutral, indifferent. It's it's the quality of the relationship with India that is likely to improve, that engagement is likely to improve. And that doesn't hold well for Pakistan because we see India as an existential threat for very legitimate reasons. Um, I think the Modi government in India has made very clear its intentions that it, it, it doesn't see cohabitation with Pakistan as a possibility in South Egypt. Um, and uh, BJP, which has revisionist sort of territorial aims in the region, uh, if it tries to do things along the lines of what we saw happen in February 2019, uh, I think it's, it's very clear that we can't expect the Americans to sort of play a neutral, an honest broker or Play the role of a neutral arbiter in that kind of situation. So, it, the America's indifference does have negative downstream consequences for the Pakistan-India relationship, um, and that's where I think things are really going to get tough for Pakistan. Um, but in terms of like America sort of putting sanctions on Pakistan or sort of taking immediate punitive measures, I don't think that's going to happen. Also, because I don't think there's uh, really that much of a sort of like policy bandwidth in, in, in America right now where people are sitting and thinking about, you know, what's the best way we can like, you know, punish Pakistan and like teach them for, teach them a lesson for having less with us for so long. If you, if you, if you look at, if you look at, um, you know, uh, US statements coming out, if you look at, uh, Policy conversations, Pakistan at the moment is a footnote in all of that. Um, 
which again I think speaks to what I was talking about, which is this increasing level of indifference, uh, not even recognizing that Pakistan is actually a stakeholder in the conflict after Afghanistan. Pakistan has probably suffered the most. Uh, the consequence that uh, violence from emanating from Afghanistan has on Pakistan in terms of the refugees. Um, none of that is being factored into uh, political discourse in the US right now about so let's let's jump into then you mentioned ttp and things you know refugees and other impacts which brings me to your really well-written analysis on what all of this means for pakistan particularly domestically internally um and you know monkey cage and washington post is sometimes on a paywall so the link is below many people will be able to read it many won't so i would first love for you to sort of explain the five big points that you you made in that article in terms of what are the things that Pakistan ought to watch out for as this new Afghanistan emerges um, and as things change on the ground over there. So uh, in my mind, there, there are like five sort of uh, obvious kind of implications of the Taliban takeover. Uh, accruing from the Taliban takeover into Pakistan's uh, sort of regional role and, and its domestic politics. Uh, the obvious one is, of course, the, the fact that uh, I don't think the terror threat from Afghanistan to Pakistan is going to reduce with uh, um, the Taliban coming to power. I think the Taliban are going as the Taliban shift their focus to sort of government Kabul from the center, uh, that's going to increase the problem of sort of these ungoverned spaces uh, at the hinterland, which we already know these are contested mil militant landscapes. Uh, Taliban works the only Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, operating in the fringe, uh, on the fringes, in the margins. Um, the TTP came out with actually quite a sort of uh, bold statement congratulating the Taliban for its victory. So my sense is that these groups are kind of are, are going to be sort of inspired by by uh, what the Taliban have managed to um, the fact that the Taliban have for the longest time sort of been out out in the cold but maintaining their this nationalist agenda. And also the effectiveness of using political violence against the state. Um, these are, these are uh, I think, important, going to be important takeaways for non-state actors operating in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Um, the second implication is, um, I think the Taliban takeover really complicates Pakistan's relationship with its own religious leaders. Um, because as the Taliban force Sharia, uh, system according to Sharia, um, Pakistan force has never had an easy sort of relationship navigating the place and space for religion and uh, national uh, religion alongside nationalism within its borders. Uh, and we've in the past couple of years seen the resurgence of groups like the Tariqi Labed, which uh, have been uh, the street power of which has been uh, very, very sobering. This is a group that also has. Uh, I think growing uh, electoral cloud. It's a group that the Pakistani security establishment has actually been uh, 
has actually struggled to deal with um, because just given how combustible the situation is. So I think there are serious, there are serious implications for uh, religious groups in Pakistan, which sort of aspire to the kind of like majoritarian uh, ethos of, of the Taliban and, and don't really perhaps see um, the value of, of Western-style democracy. Uh, third implication is for um, Pakistan's relationship with Washington, which we've spoken a little bit about. That relationship is likely to get even more complicated in the coming days and months. Fourthly, um, uh, I sort of wrote about how, uh, in my mind, I think this is going to uh, hurt Pakistan's so-called professed pivot towards geo-economics. That pivot is, was predicated on this idea that Pakistan could like uh, leverage uh, geography, regional activity, its neighbors. Uh, and um, I think that idea was continued from there being a viable sort of partner and administration in Afghanistan that could um, a prevent violence from uh, impacting these projects, but also a partner that sort of believed in the value of social economic development and an open and integrated market economy and the benefits of trade, etc. And I think it remains to be seen the extent to which the Taliban are actually going to be like a, uh, an economically savvy neighbor in, in the region. Um, there's an attendant issue which is. Pakistan's ability to sort of safeguard uh, Chinese investments in its own country. So with the Dasu that, for instance, we saw that uh, attacks on Chinese citizens and, and, and workers had uh, how it seriously sort of jeopardized Pakistan's conversation with Beijing about the safety and security of China-Pakistan economic So if the Taliban take over uh, you know, borders which is able to carry out more attacks in Pakistan, which in turn has consequences for uh, the safety and security of Chinese investments. Uh, that's not good news for Pakistan. And then the fifth, the fifth sort of uh, implication of the Taliban takeover um, that I wrote about was on the issue of refugees, which I think we've seen some some images and headlines of just how complicated that of a question that is for Pakistan. Pakistan having so clear that it's unable to take in more refugees, that there is something like a total of three million uh, documented and undocumented Afghan refugees, if not more living in Pakistan. Um, and that the state just doesn't have the capacity to take take in more. Um, so together, I mean I think I think those are just like five very broad-based uh, you know, talking points about how the Taliban, Taliban's takeover um, is likely to hurt Pakistan. But I think it's important to keep that in perspective because uh, the sort of popular narrative about what has happened in Afghanistan has been that, oh, this world, this has been a victory for the strategic victory for Pakistan. Uh, this is what the security establishment was hankering for all this while. Uh, that there's this sort of like gleeful, celebratory atmosphere in Islamabad and Rawalpindi, where people are like rubbing their hands together and saying, you know, we're for cheap, but we want to be cheap. I really don't think that's accurate at all. Um, I think there's 
a lot of uh, there's there's uh, the mood in Pakistan is very sober right now. I don't think the security establishment is at all um, ignorant of these implications, um, and uh, I I suspect uh, we again we've we've touched we've touched on this a little bit, but um, I suspect policymakers in Pakistan are aware of just how difficult the road ahead for Pakistan is going to be. And it's bracing itself for, um, you know, the sort of floodgates of to open with the international community in Pakistan. Uh, I also think that the uh, Fawad Jodhri, you know, came out with a statement saying that Pakistan is going to recognize the Taliban and we're going to wait until the history consensus uh, on the issue of recognizing the Taliban. Um, again, pointing to just how much of a political lightning rod this has been in the past. In 1996, when Pakistan was one of only two or three governments in the world to recognize the Taliban, and how Pakistan had to live through the reputational baggage of that for the next 20 years. Um, so I think Pakistan is being very careful and treading very carefully at this point because it doesn't want to again have to live with the the political and the security um, and the social costs of being a neighbor to a Taliban government that isn't recognized by the rest of the world. I think it also would fully undermine the whole position taken over the last few years by the Pakistani state is it has to be an Afghan-owned, Afghan-led inclusive government right um and if you move forward and recognize the taliban it basically is going against the stated position of the state which has been the stated and rightful stated position of the state for a number of years now um couple of things that stood out to me in these five things that i want to dive a bit deeper on that sort of you know have been making me think since i read your article the first is this TLP versus TTP, or let's say the Barelvi versus the Diobandi schism, um, and a renewed sort of, you know, fuel on the fire, so to speak, within that schism. Living through the 90s and early 2000s, we all remember how sectarian violence was, you know, all over the map in Pakistan, particularly directed against Shias at that time. Um, but even during the early years of the war on terror, I remember growing up in Karachi and the entire Sunni leadership was blown up. Um, at Nishtar Park, if I remember the name of the park correctly, the whole stage was blown up and they were decimated, right? And there was this really ideologically, religiously, you know, sectarian um, dislike, if if I can be more diplomatic about it, between the Diobandi school of thought and the Barelvi school of thought. And essentially what's happened in the last few years in Pakistan, as you rightfully pointed out, is that you have a Barelvi party, ascendant in power, ascendant electorally, ascendant in terms of its street power, but not militant per se, like the Sipai Sahaba Pakistan or the TTP type uh, religious groups um, in, in the country that have operated in the country. Now you have the military victory of the Diobandi sort of militant arm in Afghanistan, which emboldens um, groups like the TTP or may in Pakistan, how do you see the very real risk of the fact that you now have a group that has won power through the gun 
and another group that you know views the other one as as not muslims essentially if you read their ideology but that has electoral and street credentials and has flexed its muscles um through that in the last few years how does that plug into the calculus of the pakistani state given that this is going to be something that is going to dominate headlines at least in my view for the next few years now yeah um, well, it's 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 a big i think anxiety for for the pakistan which i think they're talking about the dlp is banned which in some ways is um there's an additional risk there which is that because it's banned it's it's sort of popular appeal therefore is going to be very hard and and sorry to interrupt i'll say they're nominally banned because on 14th august in karachi they took out a huge independence day rally and nobody stopped them so they're able to still do some of those things i think it's important to keep in mind that that uh, you know uh, religious outfits and groups uh, with political agendas have uh, this capacity to better morphizing these um variations of themselves for the purposes of political survival so this with dssp vlj the fact that these groups are able to reinvent themselves to sort of continue to exist um in the political mainstream um again this i think speaks to the counter extremism challenge that the pakistani state faces uh, and the sort of the heft in which the state is able to uh, i think pursue counter extremism policies is severely going to be tested in the coming years because groups like these will be bolder will be inspired by the fact that a religious group with a nationalist agenda was able to be successful in in uh Afghanistan essentially by not playing the rules of the game uh so the plp for instance has been was trying to play by the rules of the game right it was contesting elections it was getting seats in the same assembly um it was on on an upward electoral trajectory um what happens the day when that that party or group decides that we don't want to play by the rules of the game um, we saw some of that happen with for instance the fazabad dhamaka these groups were able to essentially bring a nuclear armed country to its knees uh for days at end and then negotiate with the military establishment um, like a sort of sovereign sitting there signing a, a terms of agreement or saying that the french ambassador has to be expelled i think these are uh, very serious kinds of questions which need to be considered um and 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 and, and i think that they're 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 going, they're going to be watching what's happening in afghanistan very closely with a lot of interest they're going to be very interested in how the taliban decides to govern um you know how the taliban is holding press conferences and you have the west sort of sitting taking fielding questions to the taliban western journalists fielding questions to taliban and the taliban very sort of confidently today like ajun ki khabar hai ki the the west is the taliban have said that we're not going to be introducing democracy in afghanistan right um I saw that press conference, by the way, and I was joking with some friends that the um, the Taliban rep in that press conference showcased more discipline and savviness than many Pakistani government officials during their press conferences often do. It was it was a masterful press conference. Look, I think I think there's a you know uh, 
the problem here is is that if the taliban decides to um rule afghanistan through you know, by islamic fiat by council by enforcing sharia but saying that look we will we will uh, safeguard and uphold women's rights um and within the confines or the boundaries of sharia whatever that means um we don't expect democracy from us um i think it's going to be hypocritical of the west to not accept that, that given that uh, you know countries in the west have very good relations with for instance countries like saudi arabia which also do not have democracy right um have limited representation for have a very sort of uh, minimal representation for women who are allowed to drive until weren't allowed to drive until a few years ago um and when religious groups in pakistan and see that groups like the taliban are able to command legitimacy like this on the international stage by doing the bare minimum in terms of their ability to sort of say yes we're upholding women's rights and we're we're allowing like women to uh serve in government offices provided like you know they're uh covered etc um these groups are going to say well great why can't we do the same in pakistan you know the other thing there i think is is that we sort of assume that south asia's natural gradient is left leaning i i don't think that's necessarily the case look at what's happening in india um the entire region is shifting rightward um and this happened in india starting 2014 this happened is happening in afghanistan now i mean pakistan is sort of like the only country where we have an elected government that isn't sort of i mean it's it's center right of course but it's not it's not like a an extreme form of you don't have the dlp sort of sitting in power in 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 islam yeah but far let, let me push back one thing i'll agree there's a rightward shift not just in the region i would say globally just look at what's happening in europe and poland for example you can pick up the headlines about what the laws there have been or hungary or eastern europe at, at large even france like i mean just look at what what's happened there or even germany um and the united states where we're sitting there's a huge backlash against sort of towards the right even though joe biden won the reality is that there is a resurgent right in this country and a very with a very dark ideology but in the pakistani context when we say look pakistan does not have any of that well pakistan has already done a lot of the constitutional work of making it an islamist state uh decades ago you cannot have non muslims in positions of leadership by law in the country you have an entire sect of people who are considered second class citizens to which you and i by the way are guilty of participating in because every time we sign a document for our passport and for our id cards we actually denounce a group of people for being who they are right so i mean how much further right can pakistan go when all of those things legislatively have already and constitutionally have already been done and you have riyasat e madina i mean that's flawed as that you know the pr of that might have been great but it is a rightward pill towards creating a riyasat that goes back centuries in in its yeah. ideology i think the difference there is that pakistan still has uh space for uh a plurality of political voices um uh, at least within its political legislatures and in we can debate the extent to which they're effective uh but you have parties on the left granted these are parties that have like you know uh 
are as culpable for Pakistan's uh, the sort of bargains that Pakistan has made uh, in the 70s and the 80s with religious extremism. Um, but you have politicians, you have members of the opposition who are able to sort of like sit on legislation, block legislation. They're able to sort of, you know, uh, push back on draconian media laws that are being passed and say that, no, you know, we need to actually scrutinize this. Um, and you know, there you have politician, uh, uh, political parties that walk out of the National Assembly, etc. So I think it's still, I think there's still hope in the sense that Pakistan has um, political voices who do try and hold the government to account um, and do try and and that's the whole point of having a democratic system that there are checks and balances and that um, you know, there we have oversight in parliamentary committees, etc. Uh, again, I think this is getting to perhaps a bigger debate about Pakistan's uh, sort of the how institutionalized Pakistan is as a democratic quality and given the fact that a lot of these decisions are of course taken in uh, by leaders, uh, by un unelected leaders in, in, in Pakistan. Um, but I mean, my sense is that there's still, there is still hope in, in Pakistan, um, with particularly with regard to um, the maturity of democratic institutions and the, the, the extent to which I think political actors recognize these institutions as normatively important for the continued health of the federation and system. Um, so I think that's one possible. So the, the, the question though then becomes is, well, that's all great, but can this sort of, can, can, can Pakistan Democrats be a vanguard to you know, a growing wave of religious extremism um, and intolerance in the country. I, that's 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 a question that I I don't know if, if that we have an answer. But we have a former prime minister, Benazir Bhutto, who lost her life to, to religious extremism. Um, so we, I think. It's going to take a lot of bravery from those who are in positions of power who can hold the system to account. Um, but it's not going to be easy, particularly yeah. what's happening in Afghanistan. No, fully agree. And I think we often deride um, our politicians and our and our civil society leaders. Um, sometimes, there, but, can I yeah. just say one, one more thing, which is that on this point, I think the role in Afghanistan right now of um, uh, political voices like uh, Abdullah Abdullah's and Hamid Karzai's is going to be extremely crucial. Um, because as a just as a parallel to what we were talking about in Pakistan, I think the fact that these political figures stayed back in the country when Ashok Ghani fled, the fact that they've said that look, along with the likes of Hikmat Yar, who isn't by any means a centrist, but we're going to try and uh, sit down with the Taliban and uh, see whether we can we can uh, Negotiate an intra Afghan, inclusive intra Afghan uh, settlement, um, I think is very important. And it's going to be even more important for figures like Abdullah Abdullah, as well as former, uh, you know, Shirpani's former cabinet members who are, in, including the women working in, uh, who have been in power. Uh, I don't know how much political space they're going to be afforded, but these are going to be 
protocols in Afghanistan, which um, I mean, my hope is that the Taliban allows these political voices space. Um, but again, these are going to be you know, the, the counterweight to the Taliban's more sort of extremist tendencies. And I think there, there's two big sort of combination of carrot and sticks that are hanging over, right? That have so far gotten the Taliban, at least in my view, to play nice, at least for the sh a short period of time already, which number one is they need international legitimacy and their Pakistan stated position of saying, we're not going to recognize the regime until the rest of the region follows is good because it keeps, you know, the door closed towards Taliban sort of doing things on their own and moving towards a path that they otherwise would want to, perhaps, right, one could argue. And I think the second sort of carrot or stick hanging over is that the IMF has blocked Afghanistan's $9 billion or so in reserves. I think in terms of liquid reserves that the Taliban currently have access to, it's a few hundred million dollars, if even that, um, which means that if you do not reach a political settlement and have an inclusive political process moving forward, where the likes of Abdullah Abdullah and Hamid Karzai say, you know what, we've made progress, we've achieved some goals in terms of finding a path forward with the Taliban, then that money does not get released, which is terrible for, which is going to be terrible even more so for the Afghan people. Um, it will be terrible in a second term or second order effect for Pakistan because of the refugee flow the in impact of potential inflation and the devaluation of the Afghan currency and the economic crisis that will follow as a result of that. But that is a big sort of deterrent for the Taliban as well, because you would want not want to be in a position where you do not have the money as a government coming to power to do the things that you want to do to maintain stability. It will make a lot of people go sour on your regime very quickly. So I think we definitely have that. And, you know, I think I think the Taliban recognize that. Um, I think um, the you know going back to February 2020, if you open the, the statement that the Taliban signed with the US, there's a recognition on the Taliban's part of the importance of recognition. And I think the Taliban, having fought an insurgency and having been out in the cold for so many years, realizes just how dependent the uh, Afghan economy has become on systems on international um, So I think something like 21% of the Afghan economy of the cross-national Afghanistan is uh, equivalent of that is, is coming through to complete the form of international aid. Right? What happens when that dries up? I, I think the Taliban want to be able to demonstrate that they're able to run a solvent economy at the bare minimum. Uh, and they're going to do what it takes to, to be able to demonstrate that. Uh, so the lot of, there, there are a lot of these questions swirling around national analysis right now, which is, you know, all this cheap talk on the part of the Taliban, they're not really going to uphold women's rights, they're not going to break the constitutional freedoms. Um, but I think that the, the level of pragmatism within the Taliban is, is yet to sort of show itself. And I think the, I mean, I hope for the sake of uh, the women and the minorities that are living in Afghanistan that we're right, that the Taliban actually have to take steps to say that, yes, we're, we're abiding by uh, our obligations as a member of the committee of nations. 
and we want to remain integrated with the world economy. Um, well, countries like Germany, for instance, have already said that if uh, that they're not going to send more aid to the Taliban. And I think uh, China, for instance, is another country where the Taliban are going to be increasingly careful about how they sort of present themselves, not appear or present themselves as uh, as a sort of like the extremist kind of force that they were in, in uh, the 90s. I think they're going to want to have a slightly more progressive uh, brand appeal uh, to be able to win over international politics as they try and stabilize the system. Now, then, is that to sort of absolve the Taliban of their more famous uh, you know, domestic sort of reactions that they take, conducting uh, night raids, for instance, uh, in Kabul, and like you know, uh, delivering harsh punishments for what they see as transgression? No, not really. I think the Taliban will continue that. Um, but I mean, Again, I think there's a moral reckoning for the international community in all of this, which is that the, the Saudis were able to get away with Jamal Khashoggi, um, and you know, Saudi Arabia's relationship with most of its former, with the rest of the world hasn't really suffered as a result of that. Um, so I think the Western, the international community is also going to think long and hard about where it draws the line in the sand, what it tolerates and what it doesn't. Well, as they say, the strong do as they must and the weak must suffer. Um, and I think it's a similar situation. I think, I mean, like there's a lot of like hypocrisy coming out of the Western countries as well, right? The reports of like the Swedes and the Dutch just packing up and leaving without so much as informing the Afghan workers at the embassy who worked for them um, is just, is just, you know, shocking and awful things to do. Um, at least meanwhile, Pakistan, despite everything that was targeted towards it in the last few days of the Ghani government um, on social media in particular, has opened its doors to Afghan refugees, has flown out people seeking refuge. The embassy is doing a phenomenal job trying to get visas to those who need it and flying them out and getting them away forward so that they can be secure and safe. Um, I think those are things that often we you know, um, and, and many occasions, like rightfully, you know, talk bad things about our civil servants and people who are on the front lines and doing things or political leaders, etc. But so far, like the position taken by Pakistan from a macro and a macro micro level in terms of helping the Afghans as they can, um, has been great and has been far better than some of the Western countries and their approach in terms of evacuating or even helping Afghans who worked for them for years and just abandoning them is disgraceful. Um, I know we're running out of time. Um, and, and before I let you go, one, this was a fantastic conversation. There's a lot more to talk about in the coming days over what happens. So would love to see you continue sharing your analysis written and coming back on the podcast as well as things shape up in Afghanistan. But before I let you go, um, what are a couple of books that you know have inspired you that you would recommend um, listeners and viewers uh, pick up and read can be any topic um, uh, up to you. That's that's a hard question. Uh, I've recently been rereading um, Ambassador Riaz Khan's book uh, on Afghanistan, which is uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, modernity. Uh, and, uh, um, I think that's a fantastic book. It was written you know after after the sort of 
in our courts and the experience that Afghanistan uh, Soviet pullout, but I think so much of it is just prescient in terms of how it foreshadows exactly what's happening today. Another very good quote, I think, is Ivo Sands, uh, No Wind War, which uh, I've had a chance to read. Um, also, Afghanistan related, but I think very well written, particularly, I think, documenting just how difficult the Pak US relationship has been uh, in the shadow of, of the war in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read a lot of fiction in, in recent months. And, I think the last thing I read was at an airport. It was a, a gentleman in Moscow. I don't know if you read that, um, but it's a good sort of page turner, especially for someone who's just looking to for some respite from academic reading. Yeah, I, I loved a gentleman in Moscow, and it's one of those I love like those types of thrillers that sort of take you yeah. through historical fiction through a particular period of time, and you kind of have a sense of what happened in history. But the author using fiction is able to communicate something far deeper um, with a very interesting plot. So I highly recommend that book as well. And as the Anxiety Sands uh, No Win War is also fantastic. I haven't read Ambassador Riaz's book, so I will pick that up and read it. Um, I think the one book that already is on my list um, that I want to reread is William Darlimple's Return of a King. Um, I remember reading it in, in grad school and being like, holy crap, we're fighting literally the same war all over again from the first Anglo-Afghan war. So um, there are things in there that, you know, if you pick up and read now, you will just be like, okay, this this happened before centuries ago as well. Um, Fahad, thank you so much for taking out the time. I hope to see you in DC sometime soon and maybe we can do another podcast in person, but stay safe, stay sane and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Jose. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Okay.